Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science with Triple R. We're very happy to have you listening in. In the studio with me today is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you, buddy. And uh, we have Dr. Scarlett. Hello. Hello. Good to have you back. It's you, nice to be back after a few weeks. Yeah, you've been just, what, just lazing around? Uh, I keep going on holidays. <laughs> that was the month of holidays. <laughs> Sorry, what are they? Uh, yeah. You always spot a person who, you know, wants a holiday, needs a holiday by how they react when people start talking about their holidays. Like a bit, you know, just a bit jittery. Anyway, uh, we've got Liv in our uh, studio today doing our Twitter feed. She's hiding somewhere over there. Say hi, Liv. Hi, everyone. <laughs> there we go. Uh, rare that she gets a microphone. Rare, you know, because we just don't know how it will go. <laughs> so it's a little untrustworthy. Anyway, she's only been doing it for the last 12 years, but uh, still, you know, I'd like to keep her in check. But on the line, we have our first guest as well today, Dr. Aileen Mary Holoka, who is all the way from Montreal, Canada. Aileen, Welcome. Hello, great to be here. It's great to have you on the line with us. Now, we bumped into each other on online on Twitter because you were um, talking a bit about your thesis, which has recently been uh, approved, submitted. So congratulations. Well well done. Um, did, you, did you run out and get your credit cards changed to have the doctor in front? <laughs> I, yeah, I got to do that. I got to start calling myself a doctor on the plane and, and all that stuff. Yeah, don't, don't do that. They'll just wake you up in the middle of the night if someone's sick. <laughs> <It's not laughs> and if you're the wrong type of doctor, that can be bad. Uh, now, you've been working on some very interesting material, which links into the live performance show that we did a few weeks back here on endometriosis. But you've been looking at um, essentially aspects of communication, which is what we, we love and do so much here at Triple R, around the sort of social media activity that um, patients with, with endo actually engage in. Tell us a little bit about that research. Yeah, so the idea came to me because I... I started having symptoms of endometriosis when I was nine years old mm. and I didn't first hear the word until I was 21 wow. and I heard it through Google, right. through Googling my own symptoms. And that was after years of seeing, you know, over 10 doctors at least. So it got me thinking about how many people that is the case for and how social media has helped change how we talk about this disease and the kind of attention that this disease gets. So that's when I dove into this research. Mm. It, it, is it different to what we normally hear about? Because I think these days, you know, every time we have anything wrong with us, we, you know, some of us, not all, some of us more than others, start Googling our symptoms. And, and in, in many regards, actually, that's not the best thing for us to be doing. How, how does that compare for, for endo compared to a lot of other conditions, like, like me, for example, whenever I, I get a sore back or whatever else? I love this question, actually, because I think we've seen over the last 10 years as social media continues to rise, we've seen more and more people talking about folks diagnosing themselves online and the dangers of that. And that's absolutely valid. There's a lot of misinformation online. But what we need to consider with cases like endometriosis or fibromyalgia or PCOS, things mm. that tend to be really gendered, tend to have really long histories of dismissal, um, social media becomes one of the only tools that people have. And something that I found out through my research is that most of the people who go online go to their doctors first, but after experiencing dismissal from doctors, then go online. So it's, it's a bit of a different situation than just going online and suddenly thinking you have a brain tumor, which we've also all done. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's fair. I mean, we want to learn. It's great, you know, especially for us, uh, people like myself, the ex-geners who, you know, we never had access to this before. So it's, you know, in fact, I have an old home medical um, book that I, I got from my grandmother. It's like 110 years old. And you look stuff up in there and you see how people were trying to diagnose their own problems at home. And like now we have this version that gives us access to the Mayo Clinic and everywhere around the world. It's, it's, it's very different. But in, when you talk about um, that, that difference with 
people with endometriosis and the way they look at that, what kind of timeframes are we talking about? Like, do do they sort of go to the doctor, get dismissed, go home and do it same day? Or are we talking about over, you know, five, ten years this is occurring? Yeah, so as far as research sort of estimates right now, the worldwide average delay for endometriosis is 7.5 years. Mm -hmm. But that's based on cases that we know about. And a big problem with endometriosis is it can only really be diagnosed through pathology and surgery. So it's hard to even say how many people worldwide are suffering, how long the delays are. But generally, you have patients going through multiple doctors, maybe going through different um, fields of medicine, like gastroenterology um, or seeing lung specialists or heart specialists before they ever get to a gynecologist, let alone an endometriosis specialist. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the one that always baffles me is the patients you hear about who go through IVF and then later find out about endometriosis. And of course, the infertility that goes with that, um, you would think would have been picked up during the IVF process. It's kind of astonishing how many gynecologists, for example, don't know about endometriosis. And some of the people that I spoke to for my research, they work in healthcare, they've been nurses for years, and they still didn't find out about the disease until way later, despite the fact that it affects at least one in 10 people assigned a female at birth. Mm, yeah. And, a huge proportion. Yeah. And Aileen, what's the benefit when people go and do look at this stuff online? I mean, what, what is the benefit for those individuals? Because I know in the case with many other health scenarios, there, there isn't actually a huge benefit. In fact, sometimes it can get in the way of, of clinical care when patients have the wrong or misguided information. So what's the benefit for patients with endo? Yeah, so my my research kind of looked at how people are using social media spaces, and that came down to... Finding information, that's where things can get a little bit tricky, and I'll go into that. Um, social support, which for folks with endometriosis who may have never heard the term or can't reach out to other people, can be life-saving and mm. extremely validating. And then just the ability to tell their own stories and also get started in activism and awareness around the disease. And I think that's kind of the key point. Um, and I use Star Trek to talk about this in my thesis. People online are, are actually creating sort of science fictional better futures for the disease by sharing information, sharing accurate misinformation, accurate information, tips for how to talk to your doctor, and all these kinds of resources for others with the disease. Yeah. What, what are some of the top misconceptions um, that you've come across around endometriosis? One of the biggest ones is a lot of people think that it's a disease that happens in the uterus or that it's the lining of the uterus growing around the body. And it's actually a tissue that is distinct from the lining of the uterus and that can grow around all the systems of the body. So it can be found on the lungs, on the bowel, um, in the skin, uh, in rare cases in the brain. Uh, so it's actually a complex, multi-systemic disease uh, and it's sort of been tied to this idea of womanhood and fertility and the uterus for so long. I think that's really done it as a service in terms of research and care. Yeah. What's the situation like in Canada? I know here in Australia, it's it's pretty dim. I'm hearing extraordinarily bad things coming out of Scotland at the moment. It seems as though excision surgery there is being pushed to the point where you have to be sort of stage four, really extreme endo to even be able to access it. Um, despite the fact that one of the big endo conferences, I think, is about to occur this week in Scotland. It's kind of a bit of a, a weird scenario that some of the worst care is going to be in the country holding the, the, the international conference. But what, what are things like in Canada at the moment? It's hard and it's frustrating. We have a public health care system in Canada, which which is a great thing, but unfortunately it's been really underfunded and deprioritized. And so that means that things like access to surgery, especially really unique surgery like excision surgery, is just very, very difficult to access here. And And I am one of many Canadians who had to leave the country to actually get that care, um, which means paying out of pocket, trying to crowdsource funds, which of course is not possible for everyone. So it's grim, but um, we are hoping to sort of get some motion on a national action plan for endometriosis and hoping that that can go in a positive direction. Uh, the, the worries around that are, are, you know, creating guidelines that only solidify 
the misinformation and mistreatment of the disease. Yeah, indeed. I know I've, I've actually literally been in the room where a, a medical professional recommended pregnancy as a solution. And I, well, oh my they, they were asked to leave the room very rapidly after that conversation. Uh, but I think it's, it's one of those areas where the, the diagnosis, the treatment and the after treatment care as well all have to be factored in. It's not just one or the other. And in fact, even if we get the diagnosis right at the moment, there's going to be an avalanche of people needing proper excision surgery, which we're, we're not prepared for in Australia, I assume in Canada and other parts of the world as well. So what is next for you, Aileen? You've finished your, um, your degree there at the Concordia University in communication studies. So you got your PhD. What's coming up next? I'm actually leaving academia. Um, I where I do work in video games it seems completely different, but it does connect. But um, I am staying, uh, continuing to do work as an endometriosis advocate and trying to advocate for change here, uh, do conferences, get media attention, talk to the politicians. I I don't think that work is ever going to end. To be completely honest. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, look, I, I tell you, back in uh, I think it was. About 2004, I was at a conference in, in Tokyo and we were talking about nanotechnology and I said, I said, if you want to infest the information into people's brains at an early stage, put in video games. And uh, yes. cu- a couple of, couple of the Japanese professors looked at me and gave me this little brief nod. A few of my, my sort of Australian counterparts, you know, said to me afterwards, what were you thinking? But I still stand by that, that, uh, you know, you can get this information into people at a young age and get them to understand some of these things. And it's, it's a bigger industry than the film industry, and we forget that sometimes, and it's a great way to get communication. So can you just code that in at some point that, you know, there's yeah, a whole no lot of characters – all of the characters with Endo and, you know, that they're, they're struggling with the healthcare system, maybe put that into the next Star Wars game or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no sweat. I'll, I'll get on that. <laughs> you get on that. All right. Uh, Dr. Aileen Mary Haloka, thank you so much for chatting to us all the way from Montreal, Canada. Thank you so much for having me. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music. And when we come back, we'll have our second guest on today. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yeah, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein. Go, go on three, Triple R. We uh, we just heard "Painting of My Time" by uh, Floodlights, album of the week for Triple R. There we go. Uh, you know, every now and then like to throw it out there. Some good stuff. In the studio with us now is Dr. Beck Henry. Beck is a pathogen and genomics lead in the revitalization of informal settlements and their environments, RISE, the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. Did I miss anything, Beck? No, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I love it when you have a good acronym too. Some acronyms I hate. I'm an anti-acronym guy, but when it's one that is simple and clear... All for it. Especially when you have that mouthful to get through. You're like, it's rise. From now on, we're just rise. rise. (laughs) Now, you're involved in a lot of sort of transmission of disease-causing organisms. Let's start there. Like, what sort of organisms are we talking about? So... I am fundamentally a poo scientist. I get so excited about poo in every form. Um, So I'm a microbiologist by training and I started out in waterborne disease and I transitioned into civil engineering without being a civil engineer. I've embedded myself uh, in there through opportunity Um, and it was the best thing I did because they opened me up to this world of just understanding that, you know, poo gets into the environment from all sources i'm not just humans but also animals and then it's transmitted through these pathways that then infect our health and civil engineers are really good at learning to monitor environments and what they were looking for was somebody to understand what the microbes were doing and that's where i came in and so i'm really interested in this idea of okay the poo's in there what's happening when it's there um and how it gets from that little patch (laughs) let's say that little spot where it is to actually spread throughout an environment and cause major major disease yeah and like when when we first people are having their breakfast i just got a you know a (laughs) warning folks a warning we're we're talking about poo but you know the poo comes out yeah right is is it bad at that point or is it um the sort of evolution of what's in it that then ends up being problematic 
actually, there's two answers to that, and it depends where you live. So, <laughs> in so in Western countries, um, sort of global Northern Australia, mm. you know, falls into this. We have all these treatments and pipe networks that take yep. the poo away, and consequently, we're quite you know, we're quite clean in comparison. And so, consequently, when we get disease from feces, it tends to be quite acute. It's you know your gastro disease that you get from kids yep. in daycare. Um, but if you're living, say, in informal settlements, it, you're constantly exposed to feces in the environment, and right. so your body and the environment adapts to having this organ, these organisms in there, and it means that your disease is quite different. You end up with a lot of chronic illness um, associated with uh, fecal exposure. So really, feces and disease is really dependent on where you are. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because I know, um, you know, in Australia, like I, I never understand. Well, actually, in Adelaide, yes, but in Melbourne, why we why we sell bottled water is actually beyond me. Like, essentially, we're selling plastic bottles. We're not selling water because our water supply is incredibly clean. And I'm sure there's some kangaroos K's away that are taking a dump in our reservoir. So I'm yep. all good with that. I've looked at them. <laughs> yep. But, but you know, our water supply is incredibly clean. But when I've gone to, you know, I went to Fiji a few years back, um, I drank bottled water. Yeah. And is is that the general water supply has a sort of higher level overall of... Well, actually, this is the, this is a really funny thing. Water supply and treatment... Um, it all comes down to access. So in Fiji, we do look at potable water sources. And actually, when we measure it, it, the potable out of the tap that the city centres get looks as good as it does here. It's been treated. The problem is is that if you're in an informal settlement, you don't have access to those pipes. So you make pipes. And you have pipes going through dirt. And you have pipes that can break, but you're still getting water coming through. And so it changes sort of the quality of the water and it's not necessarily uh, not necessarily the central water source that's causing the problem yeah so what do you do in these environments like you you obviously help people in these situations i mean what what is the sort of crux of your work so the crux of my work is um so i work so rise is a big program so um it's a transdisciplinary program that's really aiming to take um, a lot of the learnings from the water and sanitation health programs. So the WASH programs have been running globally for uh, nearly 20 years now. And about five years ago, they they took all the metadata from those and they found, oh, actually, WASH isn't having the impact that we think it is. Washing hands is great, but if your environment is completely contaminated, people just go outside and they're bringing it back in. And so what RISE did was take this sort of learning and just go, okay, so we can't just deal with the water. We can't just put in a hand basin, especially when outside is just completely flooded. And so really what we're doing is looking at a total environment. So we're looking at soils, water, my thing. Mm. (laughs) I love water. Um, And understanding what's out in the environment, what's in the humans, a little bit of what's in the animals, and then... Really, that's where I sit in this assessment piece of assessing these environments to understand what's out there. And then we have this whole tranche of people who are actually looking at putting in sustainable technologies that are all around Melbourne, so biofilters, wetlands, mm-hmm. um, green infrastructure, and putting those as a way to help treat and clean the environment. Interesting. So uh, thinking in the last 20 years, what we've seen in, in Western countries in water treatment is there's certainly been a lot of shifts to local treatment centers, smaller treatment centers instead of large uh, large processing centers. And while there's arguments about keeping it local and, and the economics of scale there, are any of those technologies that are now being developed on a, on a smaller scale, is that the type of technologies you're talking about that might move over in, into these other areas? So we're talking uh, primarily water-sensitive urban design projects. So we're talking... So importantly, these are still informal communities. They sit outside. So we can't uh, sit outside sort of your regional government areas. And so importantly, pipe access and things that are going to cost money are not necessarily where the government of the countries are looking to invest. So what we're trying to do is put in decentralised systems. So systems that we uh, we work with the community to actually choose the system they want in and that what these are are, are green. So they are runoff 
uh, plant plant based um, systems for cleaning of uh, water and soil and envir- uh, and the environments and waste a lot. So, so is this treating the waste or treating the water that they're going to drink? Because I mean, if you say because when I heard plant, I'm thinking you know sand filters are two thousand years old. They're still in our water uh, yeah. treatment, drinking water treatment, and those are really effective. Ah, no. So we're not talking water treatment. We're talking wastewater. Oh. So we're so we know that um, sanitation is a big issue. And there has to be a step before it gets straight into the environment to try to clean it up. And so what we're talking really about is how do we take that contaminated water from the houses and run it through a system that will allow it to get, you know, remove some of the risky pathogens and disease-causing organisms before it actually gets out to the environment. It's interesting, isn't it? So if you see a video online after there's been some floods and someone's wading through the water, how do you... (laughs) How do you react, Beck? Oh, um, <laughs> I'm a terrible parent. I'm the one who goes, puddles, puddles, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I get very nervous. But I sit there and look, okay, where are they? Okay, that's Leptospira, okay. Yeah, we've you got know that. The stuff. We've got, some, <laughs> got yeah. some worms. Okay, good. We'll see what that happens in the next <laughs> few weeks. Yeah, I, I, flood water just makes me horribly nervous. <laughs> Yeah, why, why that we? It's interesting, you know. We learn all sorts of things in school, right? But you know, we learn that floodwater stuff—that's fun, you know. Like when it's not killing you, yeah. like because it's washing away your home, that's fun. We're going to go and we're going to we're going to pump up that little blow up dinghy. We're going to go and have some fun. Uh. What, why is it that we don't have more of a sort of public health campaign around this being dreadfully bad? Yeah, that's the thing that I never quite understand right. because I mean I work uh, also a lot with uh, industry partners throughout Victoria. And you, you can see their nervousness yep. around. Oh, yeah, <laughs> don't hop in the water. I mean, the the certainly the warnings go up. Don't hop into yeah. the Yarra River. Forty eight hours. You know, oh, most water bodies. I just never get in the Yarra <laughs> River. Frankly, I've, I've, oh, row, I've been in ro- rowing things on the Yarra River, and like everyone seemed to be uniquely uniquely working as a team to make sure no one fell in. Oh. Like, it was like, do not touch that stuff. Oh, see, I would have to complete... See, this is where I would disagree. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I've been part of a monitoring program in Melbourne Water for so nearly... Uh, my kids, I would allow them to swim out of certain places along the Yarra. Interesting. So, Up, upstream, presumably. Upstream. I'm, I'm talking around Swan Street Bridge. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, the, yeah. <laughs> there's a whole urban impact. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. Cool. yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting that... That these warnings go out that really are clear. They say, you know, 48 hours after mm. rainfall, don't. But for some reason, that doesn't extend to floodwaters. You're like, it is rainfall. It has come down. Yeah, yeah. At least 48 hours. It should clear, hopefully. But, yeah, it's really funny how the messaging seems to separate because as Australians, we think, dingy. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> yeah. We're not used to, you know, sometimes we're not used to having a lot of water. water. So when it happens, we get excited. <laughs> excited by you know, it. We get excited. And in terms of um, in terms of the sort of, as you say, like this is sort of environmental stuff, how much of this is sort of what you would call old technology? You know, as Ray said, stuff that's been around for like a thousand years versus new types of plant sort of processes and so forth that, that we can now implement that might be, I don't know, more efficient or cheaper? It, what's interesting is I think the fundamentals are, they're old, they are. Like the how to layer plants and sand and rock to, to clean water mm. sources. I think that what we're really doing, there's a lot of great new technologies that allow us to fabricate these things en masse quicker into smaller spaces because what we're dealing with is, uh, you know, we work in uh, South Sulawesi as well as uh, Suva and they have very different space <laughs> uses. Mm, yeah. And so when you're dealing in um, South Sulawesi, it's really urbanised. There's not a huge place to stick a wetland in, yep. but you can look at how you can design new ways to put in a, a stormwater biofilter. And a lot of that technology has been seen in Melbourne for a very long time. Um, you can walk all through the city and see uh, you know, the, this green infrastructure that was brought, uh, brought in. And now we're looking at, okay, how can we make it cheap? How can we make it that locals can run it? That's the important Mm -hmm. point because, you know, these are going to be in place. People aren't going to pay to maintain them. They don't have the resources to. Um, And so really the the new technology that is associated with it is really how, you know, how can we do this cheaply, you know, so that it's sustainable for these these communities. Mm. Um, But 
in a way that allows us to quickly as well. Yeah. Now, just before you go, uh, which countries are you working in? So we're working in South Sulawesi in Indonesia, um, yep. a place called Mikasa, um, and we're working in Fiji, Suva. Excellent. Well, uh, good luck with the ongoing work, and uh, and this will be a great conversation when you're in a pub or whatever, people eating their meals. Well, do you work on Beck? Uh, Poo. Oh, yeah. I'm not the person you want to be next to on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, it could be be worse. I've had worse. I've had worse. I had a a gentleman going to a UFO conference once on a a uh, transatlantic flight with me, and he said, what do you do? And, you know, normally I'd say, well, you know, at the time I was a physicist, I said, I'm an accountant. <laughs> and he didn't talk to me for the rest of the trip. And I thought that was really, ups- that was really upsetting and, and very insulting to accountants. But um, I knew where that was going if I told him where I was from. So, yeah, I think uh, being next to someone, because I've got a whole lot of questions about planes and poo oh. and what happens. This could be a whole different That's episode. a whole different thing. <laughs> Beck, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to us today. And uh, good luck with that important work. I know how, what a huge impact it has on people's health in those communities. So great work. Thank you. Folks, that was Dr. Beck Henry from the Planetary Health Division at Monash University in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine. We're going to take a very short break for some station announcements and we'll be coming back with our third guest from Swinburne University in just a moment. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Yeah, welcome back, people. People? 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 Yeah, geez, I'm losing people. it today. Uh, in the studio with us now is Professor Susan Russell from Swinburne University. Susan, welcome to Triple R. Hello, good morning. It's great to have you in here to talk about this topic. Um, this is something I've been following for a while, but the the sort of the way in which we treat a, a number of very serious mental health illnesses, mm-hmm. uh, where are we with that at the moment? I mean, are we kind of stuck 20 years ago? Has there been many new developments here in Australia lately? Yeah, I've been talking about this a lot lately. Um, uh, mental health professionals are pretty suck. Yep. So uh, the pharmaceutical industry pulled out of CNS drug development, so central nervous system mm. um, drug development, about 20 years ago. Yep. So there are new, no new drugs coming through. They're all sort of within the same bands that there were previously or right. slight modifications, but no known no brand new development. Yep. So there's been a lot of work in psychotherapies, online tools, um, you know, virtual reality, you know, thinking outside the box. But in terms of actual compounds and pharmacy, we've been stuck. So we've been looking outside the box. Yeah. So in terms of some of the the psychological disorders, I mean, there's a range, of course, that I suspect some of the existing treatments, SSRIs, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, various things, work reasonably well for it, it's probably fair to say. But there's, there's a whole range of things that are sort of intractable what what sits in that sort of bucket so when i'm talking to the general public i talk about a third a third a third okay and it's so it's easy stats for people to know even when they don't understand statistics so a third of people get a lot lot better the medications whether they're pharmacological or psychological work for them a third of people have a sort of fluctuating course sometimes we have to tweak their medication sometimes we put medication with psychotherapies uh Sometimes they have good patches, bad patches, but mostly what we've got in our toolbox at the moment seems to help some of the time. And then we have a third of people that have these chronic, what we refer to as treatment-resistant conditions. So the existing tools in our toolbox aren't working. Um, And that's pharmacology and that's uh, psychological therapies. And I'm talking pretty much across the board here. It doesn't really matter which mental health condition Mm. you're talking about. So whether you're talking about depression or schizophrenia, bipolar, disorder or anorexia or OCD and I could go on and on and on. Yep. We're talking about most disorders. Yeah. And so what has been the approach for those those intractable sort of disorders over the last decade or two? Yeah. Like what, do so, we, what do we do now? So people like me have been trying to think outside the box. So I did a lot of work for a number of years in brain training, you know, tr- using sort of modern um, developments in technology to help mm. people because uh, we've seen massive advances there and I referred to one of them earlier, virtual reality, brain yep. training 
training. Um, we have been using modern advances in neurosurgery. So neurosurgery wasn't used for very many years and it was seen to be a bit barbaric, yep. but there's been a lot of advances. So I've done a little bit of work with um, a deep brain stimulation and some modern versions of neurosurgery. Um, and then that's probably going to lead me to a good segue to where we're going to talk about mm-hmm. next is the psychedelics. So yeah. looking for compounds in our environment that people have used for very, very many years that claim help them with their mental health problems. And I've tried a number of different compounds here. So we've tried a lot of different, um, uh, what we refer to as nutraceuticals, so, so some of the uh, vitamins and minerals that we see in our environment, taking things from other disorders. So at the moment, I actually have an intranasal insulin trial to help people. Right. Um, yeah. So looking outside what was typically thought of as psychiatric treatments, looking outside in other forms of medicine to see if that the pharmacology or the pharmacology ecological compounds can help with yeah. these conditions. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it's funny. I know some of these particular compounds have such a social stigma attached to them, political stigma attached yep. to them. But I, I remember, you know, one of my sort of mentors years ago was a pharmacologist. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, him talking about um, medicinal cannabis, yes. like like it was Panadol. You yes. know, he said, this is just another compound we need to understand That's exactly and right. work out, you know, what its processes are, how it helps, whether it helps yep. and, and so forth. He had a very different approach to discussing you know pharmaco sort of responses yeah what's what are some of the things that you're sort of looking at in terms of, of this work yeah and i think i mean yeah there's there's a whole general public opinion and, and that's because mm. of the legalized legalized and unlegalized drugs and all the rest of it yep. um but but as 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 a scientist that's interested in finding compounds that can help people with mental health conditions that's what i'm interested in yep. so um it just happens that psychedelics have been worked on for with for over very 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 many years because they're out there in the general public they're you know they're 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 mushrooms that grow in our wilderness um they're other sorts of um uh, compounds from animals and so that they're around us that they're plants they're minerals that they're there and we've known that people have taken them and they've had experiences that result in some kind of uh I, i i guess an advance in their performance sometimes or helps with, you know, some of their mental health conditions. So for me, using that, like, I guess, historical knowledge, but then also our modern knowledge of what actually the compounds exist. So we know now that um, a lot mm. of the psychedelics have got a serotonergic function, and we know that, that it's that serotonergic function that we need to improve in a lot of our mental health conditions. So, so what happens in terms of trials here in Australia? I mean, I know some of these compounds are being used fairly extensively in North America already, yep. and there's a lot of yep. stuff going on there. Um, what's happen- What's the status here in Australia with regards to access for psychological disorders for, for yep. these um, compounds? Yep. So um, I, I was probably one of the earliest people to start some work in this space, uh, along with um, uh, some colleagues at St. Vincent, so Mark Ross and Justin Dwyer really were the pioneers in this field, um, along with Stephen Bright over in um, uh, Perth. So uh, we have, it's probably about four or five years now, we We've got a number of different um, uh, clinical trials um, for a number of different conditions, including post-traumatic stress, uh, major depressive disorder, and I know um, the Monash Group are doing some work now in chronic um, treatment-resistant anxiety. Uh, We're kind of we're we're kind of in the early stages like you say north america and and actually especially london have done some of the really really big trials um the the sort of um condition and the compound that we're the most forward further forward with is um mdma for ptsd there have been some large large trials and that's running now into phase three trials so that's really sort of quite advanced development um and looking to uh regulate that um in america because Mm. the evidence is really quite profound for PTSD, um, so for MDMA for PTSD. Uh, the other evidence that sort of... Uh, uh, far along the track but not as far is evidence for psilocybin which is referred to as magic mushrooms for treatment resistant depression Um, and there have been four or five very large scale international studies and in Australia I have run a pilot study for um, uh, psilocybin for treatment resistant depression and now we're running a very large 160 person trial 
Mm. So um, we, we're almost out of time, but yeah. one of the things I, I think is interesting here, I, I've, I've seen, uh, you know, through a family member, um, the use of ketamine as a treatment for pain yeah. in two circumstances. Yeah. One where it was appallingly um, sort of delivered and, and the environment wasn't conducive with a good mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. and one that was complete polar opposite of that. Presumably with all of these new compounds coming in, we have a, a bit of a training deficit with regards to clinicians knowing exactly how to yep. augment the use of these new quite powerful drugs. Yeah, uh, and again, this is a, probably an hour conversation, <laughs> so I'll try and condense it as quickly as I can. So you don't just give these compounds and let people go on their mm, way. Yeah. That, that, that is something I really need to emphasize here. It's all about the the environment that that it happens in because you are having a very profound experience dissociating from self and experiencing Mm. new realms of consciousness that you haven't um, perhaps had any access to previously. So making sure that you combine that experience with psychotherapy is actually the critical component here. So um, as you refer to, the setting is so important. Um, I've developed some really beautiful rooms over at Swinburne where people can spend the day, they can spend the day with a therapist and it's not just the therapist on the day that's important it's developing a relationship with a person that is going to support you through the entire journey so knowing how you're going to go into that experience experiencing that with you sitting with you on the day and then helping you integrate that and making sense of it afterwards it's it's a critical part of the journey yeah and i suppose that's the part we haven't really explored in a great deal as exactly what's optimum there exactly and that's where the research is lacking what is the optimal psychotherapy surround mm. you must be overall excited though with the the idea that this is as you say there wasn't a lot of new stuff coming in for a very yeah. long time and all of a sudden now there's some things that seem to offer yeah promise. yeah absolutely and it makes it makes a lot of sense to us to investigate these compounds as i say because when you look at the pharmacology it they make sense in terms of what we're trying to manipulate in a person's brain when when they have got these mental health conditions yeah and, and hopefully too we get to that point too where this isn't stuff that, you know, Scarlett's growing in her backyard. We get to the point where it's, it's pharma- pharmaceutically Absolutely. very precise. I mean, we've seen this with medicinal cannabis, Wait, like it's absolutely. chalk and cheese from what yeah. you would get in other ways. Yeah. And that matters because consistency is important. Absolutely does matter. And I think, um, you know, um, really improving the regulation and making sure that people are getting safe. I, I, I have been talking about this all year now. Um, there is a lot of controversy in this space in terms of the psychedelic. And and every juncture that I touch upon, it's about being safe. Yeah, it's an important element, especially with PTSD and other conditions. You're not going to recover if the experience is unsafe and feels bad. Yeah, exactly. Well, Professor Susan Russell, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about this over the the coming years as this starts to infiltrate into the system. But it is good to see that there is some new hope out there for for many patients. As you say, intractable conditions that devastate lives. And it's great to hear about some of these things coming through. Thanks so much. Thank you. Folks, that was Professor Susan Russell from Swinburne University. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with some news for today. You're listening to Einstein Go Go. Triple R on FM Digital online and via the app. Now, folks, you are listening to Triple R. Jeez, we've had a busy show today it's been pretty full on really exciting guests yeah one guest well, although anytime you can talk about poo it's a pretty good show yeah so we've uh, you know but we've gone through it we've gone through you know stuff online poo and and, and then, uh, magic mushrooms yeah that, you were nodding a lot scarlett i'm just saying yeah during I, the magic I don't know mushroom discussion well you revealed my backyard growing as well <laughs> just, they're the edible ones you got presumably in the backyard not the magic ones you got to distinguish them Actually, surprisingly, the other day, um, a family member of mine did go out and collect mushrooms and was going to cook them, not magic Ooh, mushrooms, yeah. but I was absolutely, no, I'm not, I'm, yeah. there's no confidence in me or the people I know around me to collect the right kind of mushrooms to eat. Oh, it's it's yeah. funny, actually, he's in the he's in studio too now preparing, but uh, Cam from Eat It once, I remember years back doing a show and he was talking a lot about, about mushrooms and the complexity required to get it right, I thought, I'll just leave that to Cam and the professionals to choose like, what I'm going to eat like there's occasionally a terrible news story where even a chef gets it wrong yeah so you know yeah exactly too risky now an important announcement folks uh if people are not aware triple r here have this amazing performance space uh, behind the studios it's wild oh it's, I, we've been had some great shows yeah, in there. yeah. did you do endometriosis and- we we did just a few weeks back but uh, of course there's a lot of live performances uh, on a friday night at um 
at the performance space here at Triple R, and um, there's a huge lineup uh, coming up for May, which I wanted to announce. So, um, as they say, maybe cooling down outside, but things are heating up in the Triple R performance space. I did not write that. I'm just saying, <laughs> but it's true. Uh, anyway, next month, uh, we've got performances from Private Function, RVG, King Stingray. Only Triple R subscribers can win tickets. So, it is April Amnesty. If you have not subscribed uh, to Triple R, Get online and do it. I don't know what the date is today, but I feel it's pretty close to the end of April. Is it the yeah, 30th? It is the 30th. See, so if I was educated, I'd know how many days we're in April. Well, well no, because the, the important things are next week is May 1st, and yeah. then there's May the 4th, with oh, yeah. May the 4th be with yeah, you yeah, day. Yeah. So really exciting things happening next week. But Anyway, you can get these double passes to come along to the Triple R Performance Space. Um, there's awesome shows on in the evening. Uh, I think they're usually on Friday night. Ours are, of course, on a Sunday morning, but um, these are the general ones, and there's some great bands and things you can come along in the performance space as well. The Triple R's got a liquor license and everything else. It's fantastic. So get on to rrr.org.au and subscribe or donate, and then you'll have access um, to getting some of these tickets. And with April Amnesty, there's a whole lot of April Amnesty prizes that you'll be you know it's like a mini radiothon I like to think of it yeah. it's not, not as huge as the radiothon but as important and um, that's something that is is the lifeblood of Triple R so if you want to do that um, get online there's some cool some cool things coming up you know it, it's funny after a couple of years of of, of, of of lockdowns and then still the station being very careful you forget you know that it's actually a very vibrant place there's yeah. a lot going on yeah since on a Sunday morning it's pretty quiet yeah. <laughs> there's not, well you know, all the, the, the great stuff at Triple R and not always here on Sunday. But uh, us, us uh, Sundayites are. But the performance space is a great place. So if you haven't been there, folks, uh, get involved. It's great. And it's your station. It is. Yes. It's a community yes. station. Now, we're going to jump into some news. Uh, Scarlett, do you want to go first? Yes. I, I was uh, just reading about a new study on tool use in animals. Oh, Okay. But, uh, well, I'd like to pose the question first because I was. It made me think a little bit um, about what's your favourite or weirdest tool use story in animals uh, that you know of. Otters are always good for using things to break seafood open and shells. Yeah, I uh, think there's some bird stuff going on, isn't there? Some cool bird yeah, stuff. Yeah, some bird stuff going on where they use tools. But I, um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm still convinced whales use tools. They just hide it, but you never <laughs> see it. Uh, yeah, you never know. Yeah, and, and clearly hammerhead sharks. I mean, the name. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they I are, think yeah. you might have misunderstood that, but that's uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, I'm obviously very biased, but one of my favourites is um, the bumblebee. Things, oh, yeah. The string pulling, the rolling the balls to play golf or something. Um, really? Yeah. I didn't know about that. They play golf. I was sure bumblebees. this would have been covered on the show. Oh, no, no. I, I did that story years ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah, where they trained bumblebees to, like, move balls around and stuff and mm-hmm. gave what? them rewards. And, and they actually – it was – Scary how quickly they picked it up. It was. Oh, so cool, cool. check those videos out yeah. if you haven't because they're incredible. <laughs> um, but this new one was actually on assassin bugs, um, using it tools in a predator-prey interaction. Um, so these bugs, they are called resin bugs, the specific species, a new species in WA um, on the spinifex plant. Mm-hmm. And they are covering themselves in resin to, like, uh, get their prey to get a bit sticky, can't move away, and then attack and stab them. So the researchers wanted to know whether this was sort of, whether it was real tool use. Is it incidental or is it actually tool use? Which uh, there's quite a specific definition there where tool use has to be using this item, environmental item in some cases, which is the resin, in a way that's not its usual use. So what they did was allow the bugs to put the resin on themselves or not and then track how successful they were at killing different prey, so flies and ants. And, yeah, they were pretty successful. When they used the resin, they were something like over 30% more successful in their hunting. That's wild. So they're using this, yeah, this hunting method to, um, yeah. Because normally when we uh, think of tool use, when people say tool use in animals, I think of the opening sequence of 2001, you know, where one of the the apes picks up a a bone or something. So, you know, know, that's it, right? We don't think of, like chemical <laughs> modification of environments and, and stuff like that. It's quite a different type of tool use. It is a very different type of tool use. And so they did confirm that it was tool use, I suppose, but also then they were using it for egg defence too. So this resin, I guess, has a number of properties. They cover their eggs with it and then they can't get predated on. Interesting. So these little assassin bugs, they're doing a lot. Now, every now and then I get uh, text messages from people who will remain anonymous that uh, also indicate that apparently dolphins use dead fish to masturbate as a tool. 
Oh. Is this true? That's not one I'd heard of. Yeah, there we go. We'll have to That's check that out, folks. Fine. But uh, these are sort of messages I get mid-show. I, I don't know if I want to look that way or not. <laughs> you Google that for us, right? But, but, but how Aussie of a story is this? Spinifex glass <laughs> with uh, a bug only to just discovered in Western Australia. I mean, because Spinifex grass is, you know, has so many commercial – they're exploring it for commercial uses. Yeah, it's yeah. just an amazing plant. And then a, a, a little bug on Spinifex grass. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool stuff. I like the fact that you're bringing in the bug stories. Yeah, I probably need to move away from that no, no, a bit, no, don't no, I? I need to no, keep it going <laughs> for the time being. It's all good stuff. By, by the way, I, I did want to – is there an entire class of bugs called assassin bugs? There are, yes. Yeah, so this is like just one – there's, I think, at least one described species. So this was a new undescribed species they used. So there's assassin bugs. There's a big, broad range. And then there's resin bugs underneath that. So, so what, a bunch of them out there. I'm probably going to get nightmares about this. What makes an assassin bug an assassin bug? Like – I, I, you know, I, I, what are the attributes there? I heard stabbing, so I'm getting a little concerned. Uh, I'm assuming – look, I actually can't say for sure what makes them assassin bugs. I'm pretty – I'm assuming it's the way they hunt and the stabbing and maybe some other things going on there. Mm. And they did say they put a stick in their enclosure, so I was wondering if the stick was used maybe to drop off to attack the bugs. Not 100% sure why they put the stick in it's the enclosure. It's a wild world, the insect world. That's wild crazy. world. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Oh, um, so I, I saw an interesting story on uh, – recycling plastics um and, and so these are you know when you think about recycling and plastics i have very mixed feelings i think recycling is great i think the idea that us trying to do things sustainably is critically important and i i mean my interpretation of recycling is also seems like one of those instances where one could interpret it as the manufacturers have put the waste problem onto the consumers right yeah, uh, yeah. and 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 so there's a little bit of that and there's it, it is a complicated problem because it isn't just that but i mean in 2019 apparently we created 460 megatons of plastic and recycled about 9% of it Ooh. so the challenge is regardless of who you think have pushed the problem where recycling is very it, it, the uptake is difficult and for a lot of different reasons and some of it is Yes, consumers might not always put things in the right thing or might might throw it out in the trash and go to landfill. But the other thing is how they're made mm. and, and also how getting those materials back and sorted is actually quite a challenge because, you know, all of your plastics have the little numbers on the bottom of them. Uh, or some of your plastics, you know, they have a little triangle with a yeah, number yeah. on it, one, yeah. six, you know, is this recyclable or not? You're not sure. But also it's it's not just that there's a different mixture of materials, and when you try to recycle them, a lot of them don't mix well together. You can't take a polyethylene bag and a PLA bottle and mix them up and try to use that material again because those two things don't mix. On a, on a kind of microscopic scale, it's kind of like mixing oil and water. You get little blobs of one and the other, and they don't mix, and they don't have right mechanical properties. And then the other thing that's even worse is people don't realize how complex these polymer films are. So if you have, like, the bag for your lettuce, it's got different layers of plastic in it that are all transparent. So there's one that touches the lettuce. There's one that prevents air from getting in. There's one that gives it mechanical strength. And so these are multi-layers of different complex plastics that aren't always easily recyclable because they're a composite. And, and so how do we tackle all this? Uh, particularly, how do we deal with dealing with recycling different plastics? Because while our recycling is good at sorting plastic from metal and paper from plastic, and is actually quite advanced, how do we sort the polyethylene bag from the PLA or the PET bottle? And, and so the answer is a lot of times you can't. So what do you do with this mess of materials? And so what I saw in nature was an interesting approach to this about recycling mixed plastics. So mixed plastics are largely what are called thermoplastics. So you could think on a molecular scale, it's kind of like spaghetti. Uh, there's a different type of plastic called thermosets. Now, you would have encountered thermosets if you've ever used a tennis racket because that's the carbon fiber and thermosets are, are plastics or what those are made out of. Now, thermosets are like spaghetti where it's got a bunch of glue points together where they're cross-linked. It gives it great mechanical strength. It also doesn't make it generally recyclable. But what these researchers have done is made a taken, figured out a way to take a lot of different types of recycled plastics and take that molecular picture of spaghetti and cross-link it a little. And they use what are called dynamic cross-linkers. So instead of a cross-link polymer, it's called a vitrimer, which is a great name because it's kind of related to the word vitric 
for uh, the word, the Latin word for Greek word for glass. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of neat. But what they basically done is said, well, let's take these plastics that won't stick together normally. We'll crosslink them together with a cool little small amount of a chemical crosslinker, and then. It will make a plastic that you can actually reuse because the crosslinker is dynamic, so you can heat it up and mold it, and you can hold together these different mixtures of plastics. And so you start to go, well, this is now a pathway to take that mixture of the polyethylene bag and the PLA bottle and actually recycle it and use it for something. Hmm. Uh, and then that is one step forward to creating a circular economy for these things. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. And they're getting there. It's not all rainbows. They still need about 5% by weight, so they need a lot of crosslinkers. So it's not at the commercial scale point, but it was the first time I saw somebody tackle a, a nice way to tackle the, you know, we're never going to get people to separate the mm. different types of plastic. So how do we use that massive chopped up yeah. plastic in a way that we could use it again effectively? Yeah. Well, speaking of things that last a long time, uh, I'm not sure if you guys saw this, but uh, Voyager 2. Still going strong 45 years later. Original planned mission time, four years. Jupiter Saturn. That was it. Right, Jupiter Saturn. And then NASA extended that and said, hey, why don't we go and look at Uranus and Neptune while we're out there? And then they extended it again, and Voyager's still going. Voyager 1 and 2, 45 years later. Amazing. But we say still going. Like, you know, after four years, they could... They could change direction. Yeah, yeah. It, you no, know. but the, the key is doing particle ta- counts, all sorts of measurements with their scientific instruments and sending that back. So a lot of the heaters, a lot of the course correction stuff has all been switched off. So in order to save power, they've had to triage what they can do. And they actually thought they were about to start shutting down more of the instruments. Voyager 1's been going, going a bit better because one of its instruments malfunctioned, so that's using up less power for quite a period of time. Voyager 2, all the instruments were still working. So they were about to have to shut one down or a couple down. And the interesting thing about this is... Um, they've, they've found a hack to keep all the instruments running now for another four years. And the hack is simple. Every now and then there can be a bit of a voltage spike on these, these things, and you need a safety precaution system to stop that and halt that. Uh, that takes a little bit of energy. They've turned that system off. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Bit of a risk, pretty low risk, but it's better to keep everything running for a bit longer mm. than to worry about that at this point in time. Now, of course, Voyager's still running because it has a plutonium-238 power supply. And, of course, you might say, well, what's the problem? Why is the power going down? Well, it has a half-life, oh. right? And this thing decays, gives out heat. That's how they generate electricity to keep the craft going. But the half-life is 87 years. Now, okay. when it was launched, it was like, who cares? This is a four-year four-year trip, you know, Gilligan's Island stuff, right? Um, but after 45 years, a significant amount has actually decayed. So the amount of electricity generation is now much lower. And so it's getting to that point where it's going to be, well, we're going to start turning some of the lights off because we can't run everything. How do they select which things they decide to turn off? Or I'm sure there's a very heated discussion yeah. somewhere at uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Scientists don't <laughs> yeah. like to like concede the data. Like, yeah. so I can well, imagine you've got... it's and and you know they want to learn. We're outside the sphere of the sun now, so this is outside the protective sort of heliosphere bubble where the sun's influence is the major thing. So there's other, you know, cosmic sort of radiation and so forth outside that. And so the more we can learn about that, the better. These are the only two craft in that region. So, and it would take a long time to get more there. So it's it's a great little piece of technology. Um, 45 years. Can I just say? Don't they make them like they used to? Could you imagine a modern computer lasting 45 years? Well, I'm not even going to get in in the dying seconds of of the show of the current data bit rate. But it is, I think it's hundreds of bits, you know, per per second. Like, it's so slow. But it's still sending back data, which is wild after 45 years of travel out into space. So great stuff there. Folks, we're going to hand over to the team uh, from Edith. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and GoGo. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Liv, for doing our Twitter feed. And to all our guests today, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic weekend, and we will speak to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.